0: You're listening to The Leader's Table, a podcast by Leadership for Educational Equity.
1: Hey, Taylor. Hi, Cindy. And look who we have here, a special guest.
2: Hey, Taylor. Hey, Cindy. And hello to all you equity leaders listening out there.
1: Hey, Jason. What are you doing here in the intro of the podcast? It's usually just Cindy and me.
2: I know. Well, this episode is going to be a little different, so I figured it couldn't hurt to change things up even more.
0: That's right. And for today's conversation, instead of Jason interviewing a guest at the Leaders' Table, I actually brought along some audio from Lee's most recent virtual forum in early November, just after the results of the presidential election were kind of sort of solidified. The featured guest at the virtual forum was none other than friend of the pod, Dr. John B. King, Jr.,
1: Oh, how wonderful. I love the conversation you had in a previous episode, Jason. He shared how his education journey started off a bit rough, and after getting kicked out of high school, he was lucky enough to be given a second chance at education, and then grabbed the reins and never looked back.
2: That's so right. His hard work took him from educator to state policy leader and all the way to the White House, where he served as U.S. Secretary of Education. Now, Dr. King serves as the CEO of the Education Trust, and he's even a board member for Leadership for Educational Equity.
0: Dr. King is truly inspiring. And listeners, please do not skip this episode thinking you've heard it all already. This episode is going to be very different than before For this extra special conversation, we collected questions from Lee members from across the country and different levels of leadership to be answered by Dr. King.
2: Yeah, his insights and wisdom here are a gift, exactly what equity leaders and the Lee Network needed to calm the nervous energy that's been radiating throughout 2020 and lead our way forward.
1: Well, then, Cindy, I'm going to need you to hit play right away because I need those calming and soothing vibes ASAP.
0: Yeah, same here. All right, let's do it. Jason, will you do the honors?
2: So gladly. Pull up a seat, everyone, and enjoy this community conversation from Lee's final virtual forum of 2020, featuring Lee members from around the country and Dr. John B. King, Jr. Welcome, everyone. Hello to Lee members, partners, friends around the country. Thank you for joining Leadership for Educational Equity's fourth and final virtual forum of 2020. Today, the nation prepares for change in the form of an incoming presidential administration. 2020 has been a really long decade. As we've discussed on previous forum, COVID-19 is impacting the learning experiences of children across the country, extending existing gaps, and creating immeasurable learning loss economic stress, and mounting loss of life that is especially pronounced for poor kids and communities of color. We're so grateful to have this time tonight with Dr. King to help make sense of this as a community of leaders, find wisdom, and build an agenda for the future together. As an educator, advocate, and former United States Secretary of Education, we could not have asked tonight for a more timely guest are a more wise guide to this important conversation. Dr. King, thank you so much for being with us tonight.
3: Thanks so much, I'm glad to be here.
2: So we have a really packed hour tonight and I just want to get into it by asking you the following question. Um, The thing that's on everyone's mind, I think, as we sit on the precipice of, of federal change, what's ahead for the equity agenda at this moment? Moving into a new administration, and what can we all do together to advance equity so that this time of change moves us forward in a way that all communities feel the feel forward motion?
3: Yeah. Well, look, first we have to name where we are, right? That we are in the midst of this COVID 19 crisis that has been an equity disaster for kids and for the country. We already had these substantial equity gaps before COVID. Low-income students and students of color less likely to have quality early childhood education, less likely to get uh, the strongest teachers, less likely to have access to advanced coursework in schools that were getting less resources, less access to to counselors and post-secondary transition support. So that was all true before COVID. With COVID, we've seen the consequences of the digital divide. 79% of white families have reliable internet access, just 66% of black families, 61% of Latino families. So we entered this crisis with a huge digital divide. And then we said, school is gonna be all online. And even today in many places, school is online or hybrid and kids still can't get access. We still have kids who haven't been in touch with their school or district since March. We have kids who are doing their schoolwork on their mom's cell phone, maybe sharing it with their sibling as well, who's also doing schoolwork on, on the cell phone. We know that our least resource districts really struggled to support the professional development, the tech tools that are necessary for good instruction in an online or hybrid format. And we know there's been a huge socio-emotional toll for kids. Um, you know, I was I was a kid who... Um, really depended on school for safety and nurturing and support. Um, My mom passed when I was eight, my dad when I was 12. The thing that saved me was powerful relationships with teachers and peers at school. And so my heart breaks for kids who have been isolated from those relationships for months now. So those are the challenges into which we enter this conversation, I think there are some opportunities, particularly with a new administration. One opportunity is we ought to see at some point, either before uh, the end of this year or early next year, a stimulus package that would put real resources behind closing the digital divide, making sure every kid has a device, every family has internet access. We should see uh, significant investment to protect districts from the kinds of cuts. They will be facing uh, because of the COVID-19 economic crisis. We should see a stimulus that sets aside money to address the learning loss that we know kids have experienced. McKinsey projects on average seven months of learning loss, or as I like to say unfinished learning, uh, nine months of unfinished learning on average for Latino students, 10 months of unfinished learning on average for African American students. That's a lot to make up for. Uh, so we should see that in a stimulus package. And then with the new administration, look, The president-elect talked a fair amount actually about education on the campaign trail. Um, Dr. Biden, uh, our new first lady elect, uh, she um, is herself a community college professor, was a teacher, uh, cares very deeply about education. They both talked a lot about schools during the campaign. They talked about tripling Title I funding, Uh, talked about new resources for counselors and mental health services, talked about putting us on a path to universal pre-K for three-year-olds and four-year-olds, talked about uh, doubling Pell Grants, the main source of federal funding for low-income students to pursue higher education. So we've got, I think, some promise that this new administration will will make some big new investments that will make a big difference for high-needs communities. The question will be, does Congress come along? That's an open question. We'll have to see how things develop. Certainly, I think we'll see the Department of Education back in its traditional role of being a, a protector of civil rights and a platform for the administration to talk about equity issues and try to nudge our very decentralized education system towards greater equity.
2: When you, when you think about the call to action, um, we have almost a thousand folks who signed up for this conversation, different parts of the country, people asking, okay, well, what can I do? Not everyone will come to Washington. Not everyone wants that. Many, many, many people will do something right where they are, in their schools, in their district.
3: What's, what's the call to action to leaders everywhere? Yeah, well... Acknowledge that I was a high school civics and social studies teacher, and so I'm biased, but I would say I hope people will participate in the political process and run for office, frankly. And, you know, I'm not saying just because I'm at a Lee gathering. I I truly believe that there are opportunities for folks to really impact the direction of public policy at a local and state level. You know, at the end of the day, I, I hope some people will come and join the administration my... Uh, time in the Obama administration was a tremendous privilege and honor and federal service is wonderful. But federal government only accounts for about 10% of the funding in schools, 90% of the funding. And the vast majority of decisions are made at the state level or at the local level in our 13,000 school districts. So I hope that folks will get mobilized at that local and state level. I hope folks will run for school board. I hope folks will run for the state legislature. Uh, Some states, the state board of education is elected. I hope folks will run for those seats. And if they don't run, I hope they will spend time talking to the folks who are in those roles and helping them understand what it's like on the ground level. What are kids experiencing in schools and classrooms? How can states and districts step up to address some of these equity gaps. And if we aren't organized, if we aren't pushing our elected officials, we're not going to move this agenda forward. So political engagement, to me, is very high on the list. You know, And then I would say movement building. Lots of folks who aren't directly involved in education would be shocked to understand the conditions that we face, Uh, would be shocked to know that there are kids Whose schools haven't spoken to them since March, would be shocked to know that there are schools where there's water dripping from the roof and rodents running across the floor and where kids and teachers are in horrible conditions. They don't know that story. So we have to organize, we have to tell the story of what uh, kids are experiencing, what families are experiencing, so that when folks show up to vote, they are voting with that in mind.
2: Thank you for that. I wanna bring in the voices of some of the question askers. We got such, such immense interest in this conversation um, and several Lee members shared questions ahead of time. So I want to start with a question from Kelly Gómez. She is a, an elected school board member at LAUSD in Los Angeles. And her question centers on racial equity as schools recover and continue to deal with the impacts of COVID-19.
1: Hi, Dr. King. It's good to see you. I hope that you and your family are well. Uh, My name is Kelly Gomez, and I am a school board member on the Los Angeles Unified Board of Education. Before that, I was a middle school science teacher, and I also served as a policy advisor in the U.S. Department of Education um, under the previous administration. Um, My question for you, Dr. King, is. You know, COVID-19 has really shown the cracks that pre-existed in our public institutions with our black and brown families disproportionately impacted both by the pandemic, but also by the subsequent economic fallout. How can we use the recovery from COVID-19 as an opportunity to push for more equity in public education? And what do you view as the most important steps that we should take to ensure greater racial equity in our schools? Thanks.
3: That's great to hear from Kelly. We, we worked together in the Obama administration, and I'm so proud of her for running for school board and winning and, and the work she's doing in LA. Um, and she asked a really big question. So, you know, I think, I think one, there's some opportunity in this moment to tap into the deeper public understanding around these inequities that we face. You know, there are a whole bunch of folks who are affluent who never thought about what it would be like to not have access to reliable childcare. And now with COVID, they've experienced how hard it is to navigate life without reliable childcare. I think they could be mobilized as voters in support of a commitment to universal quality education zero to four. There are a whole bunch of folks who didn't really think very much about the digital divide. We know we had the homework gap before COVID, but now, they see that internet access in the 21st century is a lot like electricity in the 20th century. You need it to participate in the economy and in civic life. You know, in the New Deal, forgive the history teacher me, in the New Deal, part of what FDR knew was that electricity was vital, and so we had the Tennessee Valley Authority, we had this massive federal effort around bringing electricity to folks in high-needs rural communities. We need that same mindset about the internet today, and I think there is public will, bipartisan public will around internet access that we could mobilize and tap into. Um, I think there is a sense that um, in classrooms, maybe to talk about teaching and learning a little, that this has been a really hard period, really hard for teachers, for kids, for parents. But one thing we've seen is that there is a level of student agency that can be developed in the online learning context or the hybrid learning context kids setting goals for themselves pacing their work organizing their time choosing their projects asking questions when they need help acting on feedback independently there are some habits of mine that that we've worked to cultivate through blended learning that i actually hope we'll hang on to as you know, I wouldn't call anything a silver lining because this is a disaster, let's be clear, but that is something promising that we could hold on to. I also think we've been able to break down some barriers to course access. Uh, Northern Virginia Community College offered free online community college classes last summer to all juniors and seniors in the Northern Virginia region. Right, So it should never be that a kid would say, I really want to take AP Spanish and be told, oh, well, we don't offer that in this school building because we, now we know we can offer courses without uh, being tied down to the school building. So there are some promising things. The other thing I'd emphasize in Kelly's question, this question of how do we address racial equity? I, one of the things that's required in this moment is a commitment to match rhetoric with real action, Um, you know, James Baldwin would say, I don't, I, I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. We have all these folks who said Black Lives Matter who put out statements of solidarity, but then it hasn't been followed by action. If you don't have diverse teachers, if you aren't providing a curriculum, that that gives kids an opportunity to see themselves represented. If you haven't reformed your discipline policies to eliminate racial disparities in discipline, if you aren't making sure that resources are equitably distributed within your district, then your statement of solidarity with the protesters rings hollow for me. So the second part of Kelly's question is to really move a racial equity agenda, we need to kind of bring... Um, real substantive action to uh, the professed concerns with racial equity that we've heard from so many institutions across our society.
2: It reminds me of the saying, um, uh, show me your budget and I'll show you you your priorities.
3: That's exactly right, that's exactly right.
2: I wanna move to uh, another question from another Kelly on the other side of the country. This comes from Kelly Garcia. She is president of the, who you've met at a previous event. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, She's president of the Chelsea County School Board in Chelsea, Massachusetts. And Kelly's question is gonna focus on safety and logistics of returning to schools.
4: Hello, Dr. King, my name is Kelly Garcia and I'm the chairwoman of the Chelsea School Committee. You and I met previously in June, last June in Washington DC during a league conference. So it's really great to have this opportunity to chat with you virtually this year. Um, As I mentioned, I am the chairwoman of the Chelsea School Committee. And in Chelsea, we are small but a mighty town. And unfortunately, we were hit the hardest during this pandemic. Um, And so currently, right now, we have this tension between school leaders and teachers. Teachers are really scared of returning to the classroom and teaching and we all know that our students learn best in the classroom. How do you recommend we navigate this dilemma? What, what advice could you give us in making a decision during this time?
3: Thank you. Great. That's a great question from Kelly, and a challenging one. I, I think first we have to acknowledge the extraordinary failure of the federal government with respect to COVID over the last eight months. The federal government's failure to act on COVID, failure to put in place a comprehensive system of testing and contact tracing, failure to provide clear science-based guidance, failure to um, put in place reasonable public health measures like mask wearing at scale, the failure to do those things, put schools and school districts in an impossible position. I just want to acknowledge that Kelly and other school board members are in an impossible situation where they're choosing between uh, terrible options, right? And it didn't have to be that way. Um, So we're here because folks didn't do what they should have. Now, how do school districts navigate? Well, I think, you know, we've got to, focus on the science in communities where there's very rapid community spread. I think the reality is virtually all institutions will need to close. But if you look at our international peers, they have prioritized schools over everything else. So when you look at European countries, what they've said is we're going to make sure schools can stay open. We're going to close other institutions where COVID is spreading quickly, like restaurants and bars. But in the United States, we've chosen restaurants and bars over schools. So one thing we need from a policy perspective is we need the federal government and states to lead on putting schools first in the prioritization. Two, uh, one of the things that schools are going to need to figure out is can they – allocate the resources necessary, and this is easier in wealthy schools and private schools, but can they allocate the resources necessary to make sure that everyone has adequate personal protective equipment like math, that the ventilation systems are, are up to date to minimize the risk of spread within the school building? Are they able to adjust schedules and staffing so that folks are physically distanced? So can they follow the science? Now, it would be helpful if the federal government put in more stimulus dollars so that more school districts can do that, particularly high-need school districts. But you've got to figure out how you can execute on the science of what we know is preventative. And then we've got to make some choices. And we may not be able to do the same thing in all buildings. We may have to think, as some of our international peers have done, we may have to think first about bringing students with disabilities back earlier uh, because their needs are greater. Uh, We may need to think about starting with younger students because the science suggests that the rate of spread may be lower uh, when we have students in the early grades as opposed to high school students. So there's a lot of science. Now what would be helpful is if the federal government were providing good guidance to our 13,000 school districts on this, but instead The current administration has left it to every school district to navigate this on their own. So one hope for a new administration is that there'll be a more coherent strategy uh, to provide good guidance so that folks can follow the science. Hopefully there'll be federal leadership on the public health work that needs to be done at the community level. And the last thing I'd say is it's very hopeful that we have these new vaccines coming. It's gonna take a while to get them broadly distributed. Uh, Chiefs for Change is an organization of district and state leaders, many of whom are LEA members. uh, Chiefs for Change called last week, I think rightly, for teachers to have access to the vaccine as essential workers and to think about the education workforce as a population that should get early access to the vaccine so that we can get folks back to school safely. I thought that was a good recommendation, and I hope folks will take that up.
2: I saw that brief as well. I also it it, it reminds me that you also are a father, um, parenting mm-hmm. kids in school. And we hope that your family is navigating this uh, this disruption as well.
3: Thanks. Well, I see I see the challenge firsthand. My kids are here in Montgomery County, Montgomery County Public Schools. They're virtual till at least January. Uh, my girls are in ninth and twelfth grade. And it's been tough. I mean, you know, we have lots of privileges. We're very blessed. Everyone's healthy and safe. Um, But, you know, for my 12th grader, to not have all the rituals of senior year has been hard. And for both girls to not have the social components of school and extracurricular activities has been really hard. Um, I think all families have had to to struggle, really, with the isolation. that comes with not, not having those connections at school.
2: Absolutely. I've heard a friend say that this pandemic is a thief um, at so mm-hmm.
3: many different mm-hmm. levels.
2: Let's exactly. move to our next question. So uh, this next one is coming from Isabel y- Yalores. She's a teacher with KIPP in Washington Heights in New York City. Isabel's question is about standardized testing in light of the pandemic and just generally how we how the, the the testing regime and what it will look like over the years.
1: Hello, Dr. King. Thanks for being here. Uh, my name is Isabella Loris, and I'm currently in my 15th year of teaching, having started my career as a Teach for America core member in NYC, and I'm now teaching at KIPP Washington Heights Middle School in Washington Heights. I've spent my entire career teaching in public schools in NYC. I'm keenly aware of the impact standardized testing has on students and teachers in terms of what they teach and what they're forced to prioritize. My question to you is how do you see standardized testing playing a role in schools this year, if at all? And has the pandemic and remote learning adjusted our reliance on the importance of this one limited metric? And what do you see as the future of standardized testing in public schools? Thanks so much for your time, take care.
3: Such an important question. Yeah, where I'd start is with the values, right? What what are the values behind why we have assessments? What are the values behind why we have annual assessments? One is parents and teachers need good information about how students are doing. Uh, We've done some polling recently at the Ed Trust across a number of states. And one of the things we hear very consistently from parents during this COVID period especially is how desperately they want more information about how their kids are doing. They wanna know um, whether or not their kids are falling behind. There's real fear about kids falling behind. That's one of the values at stake. A second value is we ought to, if we're focused on equity, direct additional resources to the students who are most in need of additional support. And so we have to know, who are the kids who need that additional support? Who are the kids who are falling behind? And, and, and in this COVID period, that's even more important because we have such variability um, between school districts, between schools, even at the level of individual kids. So we, we need to have information about where should we put our investment uh, when we get those stimulus dollars, I hope. Uh, one of the things I'd love to see is a national tutoring core something that the United Kingdom is doing, mobilizing recent college graduates to do uh, intensive uh, tutoring and support for students. So if we are going to have that additional intervention, how do we direct that intervention? And then the third value is around the role of the civil rights community. And one of the things that is very important to the civil rights community is the ability to take a hard look at where there are gaps in opportunity based on race, based on income, based on English learner status, based on disability. So those are the values that ought to animate how we think about this question of of what to do about assessments. What I hope will happen is, you know, we have to see where we are with the pandemic, but I hope states will stand up the capacity to provide assessments whether it's online or in person and we know that that is possible to do at scale uh, so that we have information this year on how students are doing but longer term i think there's a lot of work to do on what i would characterize as assessment innovation Uh, so how do we move towards assessments that are uh, taking advantage of some of the technology that we have how do we move towards assessments that might be more adaptive How do we move towards reading assessments that might build in more content knowledge? Louisiana is piloting reading assessments that tie reading with social studies content. So we get a sense of whether or not students are building the knowledge base that they need to be successful readers. Uh, How do we build in more performance based opportunities? Uh, So, science experiments, document based questions in social studies. Again, opportunities to leverage technology there. So I I do think we're going to see more of that kind of assessment innovation over time. And hopefully that moves us past some of the binary debates we've had about assessment that I think are a bit anachronistic if we can leverage the technology to redefine assessments. Assessments could even be built into the curriculum more. So we might have students who are participating in um, expeditionary learning, for example, has a really powerful English language arts curriculum that they do, could there be assessments that are built into that? And could that help give us information about how students are doing Thank you for that.
2: Let's go to our next question. It comes from Kevin Guico from Empower Schools in Austin, Texas. Kevin's question is about the ways that educators can lift up their voices as advocates. Hello, Dr. King. My
5: name is Kevin Guico, and I'm a former seventh grade ELA teacher, former education organizer, and a Lee member currently working at an organization called Empower Schools in Educator Empowerment. During my time at this organization, I've seen how important it is to grow educators into strong advocates for educational equity so that they can influence systems, innovate, and make the best decisions for the students they directly serve, especially amidst this pandemic. This made me wonder how we can encourage educators to be a strong voice in advocating for what they need from local, state, and federal legislators and encourage them to implement and share their best innovations with more students in this new world of schooling. How do you think the conditions for educator empowerment can be created so that they have what they need to advocate, innovate, and advance educational equity?
3: There's so many pieces to what it would take to to get to that vision. I would say part of what we need to do is look towards a place like Singapore that has a very different conception of the (laughs) teaching profession. In in Singapore, they are much more systematic about high-quality teacher preparation that is heavily subsidized. by the government because they know teachers are essential to to their national future. Uh, If you you go to Singapore and you talk with military leaders, political leaders, business leaders, community leaders, they will all say the most essential profession in Singapore is teacher. So one, one thing we could be doing is making that early investment so that teacher training includes things like work on issues of implicit bias includes experiences in diverse communities. Um, One of the teacher prep programs, innovative teacher prep programs that was funded through a Race to the Top grant um, in New York had a program where before you did your student teaching in a community, you would do an internship at a community-based organization in that same community. So you would get to know kids and families, not just as students, right, but as whole people and understand all the things that were going on in the community before you even went in as a student teacher. We could be doing much more at the preparation level uh, to prepare teachers to be equity advocates, uh, as well as better prepared for the classroom. We could be doing more in induction support. So in Singapore, they're very intentional. The teacher prep doesn't end the first day that you're in a classroom. Teacher prep is a ongoing experience of mentoring. This is something that Teach for America has done with the coaching model. Um, But Singapore does that at scale. All of their teachers are getting that support over their first few years in the classroom. And then Singapore has a career ladder model where teachers who are highly effective in their classroom get the opportunity to be coaches for new teachers. Uh, Teachers can get to be coaches across a school building, across multiple schools. Teachers can cycle in to the central government education agency to support teachers across the country and then come back to the classroom. In Singapore, it's considered an honor to be sent to a more challenging school environment because it's, it's happening because people think you are... Uh, especially well-equipped to help improve outcomes in that school that may be struggling. It's true of teachers, true of principals as well. So to my mind, part of what we need to do is think differently about the profession. And then we need policy leaders to be much more systematic about making sure that teachers are part of the policy conversation. One of the things we did at the department when I was secretary and and Arnie Duncan, who's my predecessor, did this as well, was to have a team of teachers from around the country, teacher ambassadors, who sat in on every policy committee meeting at the department to give the classroom perspective and who were also very much involved in the development of new initiatives. And that, that program continues. Uh, it's been, I think, more challenging to keep it going in recent years, but I, but I, I am confident that that will be uh, reinvigorated and continued in a new administration. Um, and I, I hope as people do that, that they're intentional also about diverse teacher voices. One of our challenges as a country is that um, majority of our kids are kids of color, only 18% of our teachers are teachers of color. And often, uh, the voices of teachers of color are not um, heard in district central offices, at school board meetings, and state or federal policy. And when we've done work at, at Trust interviewing teachers of color around the country, around why they may leave the profession, one of the things we consistently hear is a lack of opportunity to be heard and to be a part of figuring out how to best support students. So that, that piece around teacher voice also has to include intentionality about diverse teacher voices.
2: It's an, we talk a lot at Lee about the representation gap. Um, single, we know that people of color uh, inhabit just single digits of the over half a million elected leadership opportunities around the country. It seems that representation gap uh, just plays out from the classroom to the school board to the state legislature and, and on and on. We, um, as we move to the next uh, the next question, we're you're going to see a little bit more of um uh, more of the diversity of policy questions that that membership has. So this next question comes from Doctor Lekimber Brown. She's uh, in Silver Spring, Maryland, and she's focused on the whole child concept and how it can be promoted in years to come.
6: Good evening, Dr. King. My name is LaKimber Brown, and I'm a 22-year educator who has served as a middle school math and science teacher, principal, principal manager, and chief of schools. Currently, I'm chief of networks at Leading Educators, a national nonprofit focused on building systems to support high-quality professional learning for teachers and leaders. This moment feels like an opportunity where we can openly address how students feel outside of the classroom, racial unrest, and access to systems to support trauma. The pandemic is forcing us to reckon with all the supports that contribute to a student's learning, sense of self, racial identity, and overall emotional well being. At Leading Educators, we created a whole child framework that addresses each of those aspects to serve as a roadmap that teachers and systems can utilize to practically engage in this work. As a systems leader, I have witnessed different initiatives come and go. The only way to ensure that all students have similar access to these whole child approaches is to have it be part of a national agenda. What do we need to do to get the whole child agenda to be the agenda? So it doesn't feel like an add on, but schools, systems, and political leaders are thinking about it and its impact constantly.
3: Yeah, I I think at its core, part of why we don't have the whole child agenda that we should is because folks are not focused on providing other people's children what they would want for their own. And so if you think about um, what affluent students experience, right, the um, strong academics, but also rich extracurricular opportunities, access to health care, access to mental health supports, right? We, we know how to do that. Affluent families have that. The question is, are we prepared to do that for all kids? And so to me, part of advancing a whole child agenda is asking, what are we prepared to do differently as a society to address the needs of our kids who are most vulnerable? So are we prepared to make the investments necessary to ensure that kids aren't coming to school hungry? Are we prepared to make the investment necessary to ensure uh, that all families have access to quality health care, including mental health services? Are we prepared to invest in after school and summer programs that are high quality for kids in high needs communities? Um, Are we prepared to say that just as we would never say to a kid who struggled in math, no more math for you, that we would never want to say to a four-year-old, well, you're misbehaving, so no more school for you, which is what we see happening. One of the things we worked on at the department when I was secretary was the racial disparities in discipline that we see beginning with four-year-olds. right? And so we, I think most of us, when we're thinking about our own child, We didn't think about a four-year-old being expelled from pre-K, yet what we know around the country is some of our highest expulsion rates are from early childhood education. So this shift in orientation to thinking about all children the way that we would think about our own to me is sort of foundational to moving this uh, whole child agenda. There are some promising signs. Um, President-elect talked about significant new funding for counselors and mental health services uh, during the campaign. We have some states that are uh, changing their their school funding formula to set aside resources to support community schools with wraparound services, particularly in high-needs communities, um, including here in Maryland. Uh, there's a school funding reform package that the governor, unfortunately, vetoed and last session but where the legislature hopefully will override that veto uh, in the coming months and that directs new funding to the creation of community schools in in schools around the state with high concentrations of poverty. So do you think there's some energy around these things? The last point I make is that um, I'm encouraged by the increasing conversation about socio-emotional learning and worried that if we have it in a way that doesn't center racial equity, we will miss an opportunity. Uh, we wrote a paper recently at the Ed Trust about this exact topic of centering racial equity in the conversation around socio emotional learning. We've got to think about how do we build students' sense of self, uh, as well as their, as Gloria Ladson Billings would say, their socio political consciousness, so that they're in a position. Um, to understand how systemic racism operates in our society and in a position to help dismantle that.
2: I appreciate that connection. Um, So many of our members and others in the community passionate about ending the school to prison pipeline, wanting social emotional learning uh, to be the reality of of our schools. And also we are in the midst of a call for racial justice. Um, so I really thank you for, for, for connecting those sometimes disparate concepts uh, together around the child. Dr. King, I, our next question comes to us from uh, Robin Bryce. She is a Teach for America Corps member and a special education teacher. She's in Memphis, Tennessee. And Shelby's question focuses on special education and how we can make sure that all kids receive what they need to be successful.
7: Good evening, Dr. King. My name is Robin Bryce, and I'm a 901 educational advocate, TFA core member, and special education teacher for the Shelby County Schools in Memphis, Tennessee. I get to witness and often hear the struggles and difficulties that my exceptional students and their families experience as they navigate the virtual learning space. While virtual learning may be the new norm, it's its full reliance on a technological device that seems to frustrate and in some cases inhibit their academic growth. For example, many students with exceptionalities find themselves in need of tangible manipulatives and screen breaks as they progress throughout the day because too much screen time can cause them imbalance. Students with exceptionalities and their families are faced with unique circumstances due to the current national pandemic. What role do you believe policy should play in ensuring that exceptional students are still receiving all of the services that they need to be successful during this virtual learning? And how can we ensure that students whose families do not want them to return to the brick and mortar are still provided with the resources to ensure success?
3: You know, this, this question is one of the reasons why we so desperately need stimulus funding. Um, districts, I think, particularly those that are under-resourced, are struggling to serve their students well, generally, in the online learning space, but it's particularly challenging um, for students with disabilities, and for the parents of students with disabilities. So what you'd ideally want is very intensive support for parents, um, including some kind of mental health support, support group kind of experiences, because it is really challenging, uh, particularly if your child has very extraordinary needs uh, for parents to support their kids at home. We should be doing all we can to get services to families. Now, some things can be done on Zoom. If you're Uh, dyslexic, you might be able to get your Wilson reading support via Zoom. Um, But there are other services that are almost impossible to provide online. So we ought to be thinking about how do we bring some students with disabilities back to school earlier, the way some of our international peers have done. We should be thinking about how do we get providers to go out to families. Uh, particularly in places where you could do things outdoors um, so that service providers are coming to the home and doing things, again, socially distanced, everyone's staying safe, but at the the home or at an outdoor location. uh, We should be thinking about compensatory services because the reality is in some cases, Uh, The services won't be effectively provided during this period. And by law, families have a right to compensatory services when they come back. And one of my fears is that affluent families who have access to lawyers and social capital, when we come back to bricks and mortar buildings, they will insist on compensatory services that is interventions to make up for the loss service time, and low-income families may not even know that they're entitled to that. So one of the things that that we can all be doing as as, um, advocates is helping to ensure that families know they're entitled to compensatory services, that helping them make the ask for compensatory services, uh, we should be asking our school boards and our superintendents what plans they are putting in place, both to address students' needs as best we can in the current circumstance and what they're going to do to help make up for the lost service time when students come back. This is a, this is a huge challenge. And, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm hopeful that certainly during the campaign the President-elect talked about uh, fully funding IBA at the level that was originally intended when uh, the federal special education law passed—that uh, would be a breakthrough level of investment in students with disabilities. I hope that happens. Thank you so much for answering both
2: as a, from a policy perspective and from offering some real practical things to, to ask for. S- sincerely appreciate that. Um, our next question is about the use of ethnic studies to engage students of color. This comes to, to you from Jorge Pacheco. He's a, He sits on this, uh, elected to the board of trustees
8: of the Oak Grove School District in San Jose, California. Hi, Secretary King. My name is Jorge Pacheco, Jr. And I'm an elementary ethnic studies bilingual teacher in the Bay Area, the vice president for the Oak Grove School District Board of Education in San Jose, and the president of the California Latino School Boards Association. I've been working hard to bring black indigenous API, Latinx and kids of color curriculum that reflects their ancestors, their histories, their stories, oftentimes marginalized from mainstream Eurocentric curriculum, which creates a thought in their head being, don't my people matter? Don't I matter also? Ethnic studies has proven to increase grades, graduation rates, and attendance rates for students of color who oftentimes disengage from education due to a variety of reasons, but one of them being that if they don't feel seen in their curriculum, then why engage in any curriculum? I wanna change that. My question is, what are your thoughts on ethnic studies being a viable solution to engaging students of color back into education? And is there political feasibility for ethnic studies being a priority for the US Department of Education? What would it take to make it so? Thank you.
3: You know, there was a study done in in New Mexico, the impact of of ethnic studies on student performance. This was a a study looking at Mexican-American students and their experience. And one of the things that they found in that study was that the students who participated in ethnic studies had better academic achievement and higher graduation rates as a result. So, you know, I think the the idea that we ought to be doing more around ethnic studies so that students do feel seen and do have an opportunity to build, to quote Gloria ladson Billings again, that sort of that cultural competence uh, in their own uh, history and cultural experience um, could be quite powerful. We really should be doing that. The challenge for the federal education department is that um, the federal education department really isn't engaged in curriculum, right Um, not even in standards states set standards local districts in some cases schools choose curricula and the federal government's role is more overarching so a federal administration would need to be particularly thoughtful about how they engage on this, because you don't want to be in a situation of being accused of trying to impose a federal curriculum on on the whole country in our very decentralized system. That said, um, the Secretary of Education is, in many ways, like the Surgeon General for Education. They're in a position to use the, um, uh, the platform to talk about ideas and evidence of what works. And so we do have real evidence around the positive impact of ethnic studies. That would be very powerful to have a secretary talking about that. Be very powerful to have investments like the um, education, innovation, and research funding go to projects in states or in local districts that might enact ethnic studies curricula and build greater evidence around its positive impact on student outcomes. The other thing I would say is that I also hope that we are, I hope everyone on this call is involved in this, that we are hyperactive and vigilant around changing the core as well. To the extent that students are going through history, class, for example, and not seeing um, coursework content that, that helps them understand the role that systemic racism has played in our history, that is a missed opportunity for preparing students for citizenship. To the extent that students are going through their experience in history and they are not engaging with examples of Black excellence, Latino excellence, Asian American excellence, Native American excellence, that is a problem. And so we should think about how we make the core more representative and we should think about how do we make ethnic studies something that is not just for students to learn about their own experience, but for students to learn cross-culturally. I would love for white students to be in an African-American studies class, in in an Asian-American studies class. I, I want students to have that exposure and there is an opportunity, I think, for everyone on this call to be leaders in that work of diversifying the, the teaching and learning experience in their school, in their district, in their community.
2: So our next question actually connects to, to exactly this discussion. Shoa, Phil Potts, staffer here at Leadership for Educational Equity, is asking a question about movement building.
6: Hello, my name is Sharadig Philpotts, and I am a staffer here at Leadership for Educational Equity. We are so excited to have you here with us today. Speaking personally, your presence has helped light us up for the progress that is possible. So my question is, as an organization here at Lee, we are inspired about the idea of movement building. We're supporting a diverse network of leaders to tackle injustices once and for all. Can you speak to how you've seen the movement for equity change and grow over time, and what your hopes and plans are for the years to come? Thank you.
3: Yeah, it's a powerful question. I'm, you know, I think our, our goals for equity are in some sense, timeless. They are deeply embedded in our kind of national journey, in that we are a country that has long professed a belief in equality, uh, long professed a belief in uh, human rights, and yet um, we've never fully delivered on that vision. That's very much a part of our history. And over over the course of our history, we have widened the circle, broadened the circle of opportunity, um, but we still haven't, Truly fulfilled uh, those promises, those professed values. And so to me, the movement around equity is really about closing the gap between those professed values and our reality. And our reality is that we fall far short. And we have, I think, a growing, and Lee is representative of this, a growing energy amongst teachers and school leaders and policymakers to have the hard conversations about race, about class, about language, about immigration status. Um, Where in the past we've been unwilling to to grapple with those inequities as directly, I think now there is growing energy around that. There's growing energy amongst young people, students to demand that. Uh, So I think about young people involved in Integrate NYC, in new york city are organizing to say why are schools so segregated why is it that schools in many parts of, of new york city are more segregated than their neighborhoods that is that people sometimes try to blame housing for school segregation but in fact in neighborhoods like where i used to live in central brooklyn the schools are more segregated than the neighborhood Why is that? What are we doing about that? And it's not just adults asking that, it's students asking that. So I think, you know, we've added now to this energy amongst educators, this incredible energy amongst young people, also demanding change. Uh, In Maryland, where I live, in Howard County, uh, young people were a powerful organizing voice in support of a superintendent who was trying to change the school assignment patterns in the district to advance school integration. Again, young people, they want diversity in their educational experience. Uh, Young people around the country are organizing around curricular change. Uh, So there's, I think, a greater energy that we can tap into. Um, And I draw a lot of inspiration from seeing the Black Lives Matter movement and seeing a multiracial, multigenerational coalition demanding that we move towards greater equity. You know, one of the most hopeful moments for me of the last year was being in front of the White House with my family protesting around Black Lives Matter and looking around and seeing this incredible diversity of folks who come together to stand up against police violence. And so we have to ask, how do we draw inspiration from that that movement to inform our movement around education equity? And how do we make sure that we are engaged at every level? And maybe to go back to where we began, This is not just a federal issue. It's not just a state issue. It's not just a district issue. It is an issue in every community, every school community. And we have to be asking about academic achievement, about teacher assignment, about advanced coursework, about counselors, about FAFSA completion. Are we ensuring equity? And we need data to do that. But when we look at the data, we have to then determine whether we're providing equitable opportunity, and if we're not, we have to act to close those opportunity gaps. Um, But it's inspiring to be with a community of people who share that value and that sense of urgency.
2: Indeed, thank you so much for this. I want to open to the chat. It's been an amazingly fast hour, and so let's hear from folks who are live with us with a question as well. I'll turn it over to Cindy to bring one of those questions to us.
0: Hi. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Yes, thank you, Jason. Uh, Dr. King, it's been so wonderful um, hearing you answer these amazing questions. I know that we're close to time. So, um, so many questions came in, but we only have time for one. Um, This one, I caught my eye because it's so interesting, and it just was really captivating. It's sent by someone anonymous. So whoever you are out there, thank you for submitting this question. Uh, And their question goes like this. You're clearly a historian. Uh, I have enjoyed the historical references throughout the talk. Dr. King, what will historians be writing about 100 or 200 years from now about education in the 21st century? Mm.
3: That's a great question. Well, I I think it's up. I mean, this is gonna maybe this is gonna sound corny, but I think it's up to us to write that history, right? I, I really think we are at an incredible crossroads moment, right, where we could choose to just go back to how things were before COVID, right? And there's and and look, people desperately want to go back to normal, right? And and and. If we're defining normal by how it was before COVID, that means we are headed back to the same stark inequities that we saw pre-COVID, right? So one version of that history is there was COVID, there was this crisis, the vaccine came, people went back to how it was before, and society continued to be deeply divided along lines of race and class and, inequities and inequality grew and undermined the long-term health and well-being of the society. That is one version of our history. I hope that together we can write a history that rejects that. The other version is to say, COVID was a moment of real change in our society. COVID was a moment where people came away and thought about how deeply interconnected we are that if the person at the grocery store can't take sick leave and they come to work sick, that's horrible for them, that's horrible for their family. It turns out it's horrible for the community. So shouldn't everybody be able to take paid sick leave? Maybe COVID is the moment where we say, why is it that some kids can take 20 AP classes and other kids, their school doesn't offer any AP classes at all? And why, when we went to all virtual learning, do we keep it that way? What were we thinking? Maybe COVID is the moment where we say, no, every kid should have access to every opportunity. Maybe COVID is the moment where we say, you know, it's not okay that some people have unlimited resources in life and other people are lined up in these car lines that you see all over the country, miles long to get food. What kind of way is that to organize a society? Do you know that the 650 wealthiest billionaires in America are plus 900 million since the start of COVID? People are lined up to get food in neighborhoods all across America and 650 billionaires have 950 billion more dollars. Maybe this is the moment where we say, no, we have to organize our society differently. We have to organize our schools differently. We have to fulfill the vision of Brown. We have to ensure that every kid has access to a quality education, that all of our kids learn together across lines of race and class and different. And I think that is possible, but it's it's up to us to, to write that history. And everyone who's thinking about running for school board, everyone who's thinking about running for a state legislature, everyone who's thinking about becoming a school leader, everyone who's thinking about, well, will I stay in the classroom? I said, yes, yes, do, do whatever it is that you think is at the intersection of what you love most and what will make the biggest difference towards this version of our history that is justice advancing. Mm-hmm.
2: Dr. King, thank you so much for this gift of an hour. I th- we all thank you for being such a fierce articulator of the fight for equity and justice. You truly inspire all of us, thank you.
3: Thanks so much for the opportunity.
2: We wanna encourage everyone to follow Dr. King on social media should you have uh, any other questions for him. And of course, uh, as always, we never have quite enough time for, for these conversations. We hope that you'll continue the conversation with us in every, on all of the other channels that Leadership for Educational Equity offers. And Cindy is gonna rejoin us for some, uh, some, some next steps that are and, and opportunities.
1: Jason, Cindy, really great work on that forum. Those were some pretty impressive questions from Lee members.
0: Weren't they though? And there were so many great questions that we didn't even have a chance to get to. But I think that that last one that came in was the perfect way to close out and give us a very crucial action step we all need to take. And that's that it's up to us to write the history we can feel proud of.
2: I couldn't agree more, Cindy. Dr. King was able to lay out a roadmap of inspiration for us. One of the biggest takeaways for me is that educational equity is possible with the leadership, the political will, and our collective action toward an equitable future.
0: One statistic that Dr. King pointed out that I think needs to be repeated and needs more attention is the fact that while the majority of students in this country are of color, only 18% of teachers are of color. That's a big difference.
1: Something else Dr. King pointed out that I think is key was that federal funding only accounts for about 10% of school funding, leaving 90% of funding to be done at the state or local level. That means that when it comes to education, getting involved in local politics really is more important than ever. So many folks making the rules and policy now just don't understand what is actually happening in schools. That means the people who actually do know what's going on are gonna need to organize to tell the stories of what students are experiencing. Or better yet, they could run for those local and state positions themselves.
2: And that's exactly what this country needs, Taylor. And to echo Cindy's earlier point, I think this forum finished on a perfect note when Dr. King gave two versions of how historians could see this point in history 200 years from now. Things could simply go back to how things were before Or this could be seen as the moment where it all turned around maybe what we're navigating right now is our chance to embrace change and invest so that students begin to have access to every opportunity that they should
0: yes one thousand percent Okay. Well, this has been a long episode. We got to give these listeners' ears a break. If anyone out there was inspired by today's conversation and wants to look back at the event, read the transcript of this Leaders' Table episode, or talk with a Lee coach about how you can make a difference for students, please check out the episode's show notes at educationalequity.org slash Leaders' Table.
2: And listeners, thank you for joining this newly relaunched version of the Leaders' Table. Thanks for listening to the show this week. And please, please, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. Friends help friends find great podcasts. So after you subscribe, share it. We certainly would appreciate it.
1: And while you're there, please give us a review.
0: It really makes a difference. You can also write to us at Leaders Table at educational equity.org. Our show is hosted by Jason Lorenz, Taylor Stewart, and myself, Cindy Centeno. The episode is edited by Nolan Peters and written and produced by Graham Forden.
2: A big thanks to all the Lee members and viewers who sent in questions for this forum and all the Lee staffers whose work was instrumental for its success. We especially want to thank Aaron Snow, Lisa Gukian, Henry Jones, Marcus Ceneceros, Genesis Keller, Brent Lomas, and the entire Lee Communications team.
1: Thank you all for pulling up a seat at the leader's table.
0: Be well as this year closes out. Stay safe. And until next time.